All right. Well, welcome to the ninth episode in Rethinking Religion. <laughs> We've been uh, on a feels like a, a wonderful journey. Um, I, I think it's meandered in different ways, but it's always kept a thread. And uh, I'm really enjoying where we've been able to go so far. Um, where we left off last time is maybe taking a deeper look at how aesthetics and art relate to ritual mm-hmm. and uh, and also possibly to uh, you know mystical states or esoteric dimensions of spirituality. So I think that's where we'll start and then we might broaden the lens a little bit to look at practices in general because that was also something that we were exploring. Mm-hmm. And before I launch into that, I want to just do a little brief introduction for it. But before I say that, I just want to say congratulations, John, on the launch of After Socrates. Oh, <laughs> oh thank you. Thank you so much. I, I, and this gives me opportunity to thank you both in particular. Of course, the convert, you can, I, you can obviously see how the conversations that we've been having are weaving into After Socrates. I hope you can see that very readily. And so uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. It's an honor. Yeah. And I, I've watched the first two episodes and also the, the long three-hour talk you did on Neoplatonism on the, yeah, yeah. and all excellent stuff. So thank you. Thanks, Zevi, Zevi Slavin, for putting together that simultaneous release. I really like this. Uh, I like this idea of this simultaneous, like interrelating, uh, you know, uh, release of, of complementary videos on a shared topic. I thought that was brilliant. I think we, sh- we should think about doing that something similar. I think it's an excellent thing. Wonderful. Wonderful. Right, so in, in thinking about there are a couple approaches, and I think Layman and, and you, I'm sure we'll all have our own little angles to take on it and see where it, we go from there. One thing that I was thinking about just from my own practice background is thinking about the development or the evolution of the relationship to art, imagery, mythology um, within the Buddhist tradition. And I think it's worth mentioning because it's not unique to Buddhism. I think it can be extrapolated out into other contexts. So in the very beginning of you know the birth of Buddhism, uh, there was a kind of bracketing or rejection of the, the naive, uh, pre-critical kind of holding of myth within the popular culture. And so Buddhism took mostly an analogical approach to a lot of the existing myths. It would say, okay, well, we can talk about this, but they clearly framed it in rationalistic terms as mm-hmm. this stands for that. And there was a kind of austerity or, or, or spareness around imagery and representation and form with some exceptions. There are some new scholarship coming out that there were corners where there was already some kind of rich, still artistic practice and mystical framing. But in a lot of the early Theravada, there was a more austere approach around that. And then with the birth of Mahayana, uh, there was a kind of explosion of of the mythic imagination, a reinvigoration of the mythic imagination, I think in part fueled by the concept of of emptiness and the emptiness of form and, and, you know, form as expression of emptiness, that there was a, a welcome, a welcoming of the free play of mythical representation and extravagant pictures and you can find you know really outrageous and beautiful representations in the myths and 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 explosion of color and 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 mandalic forms and all of that um so from there it it that kind of welcoming a kind of second naivete maybe a recourse kind of second naivete of, of welcoming that back again 
for a different kind of play. Then beyond that, um, with with Tantra, the um, Vajrayana, secret Mantrayana, where there was a recognition that from the mind that is resting, that has clear insight into emptiness of phenomena, and the mind that is resting in that perception of the emptiness of phenomena, unified with compassion, that was the particular context there, but that from within that framework, the, the forms and the aesthetics and the ritual all are not merely uh, analogical, um, they're not even um, kind of the mythical and imaginal, but they're, they're almost sacramental in that in their manifestation, they point not only to ideas or concepts, but to actually the very state and the very phenomenal field in which the enactment is taking place. So there's a, a, a transparency between the representation and the actual cognitive operations and the states and the qualities that are present in, you know, and, and that are desired. And so then the mythic forms and the images and the representations have the function of heightening particular qualities that are desired within, you know, contemplative context. So just, you know, one small example would be there might be a representation of Kuntuzangpo as a, a regent in Yabyum with his consort, surrounded by a royal household, and there are vassals and functionaries and guards, and they're all arranged in particular ways in this visualization that you might do, very elaborate, very colorful. But for instance, there are like the crossed legs of, of you know, the, the couple in Yabyum or the, or the, the vassals on the, in its surrounding, and those have both a static meaning, the crossed legs mean the union of compassion and and clear perception of the openness of reality, emptiness. So it, it it's it's pointing directly to that that state of mind that they want to cultivate in that moment and, and actually enact the ritual within. But also there's more of a dynamic uh, representation that the one leg crossing over the other is in in a sense representing the control of the affective states in order to um, transform them into what they would consider pristine cognitions. So there's a, a posture within the act within the act of the ritual where the colors and the and the images and, and the forms that you're working with are meant to evoke particular range of feelings and affect states, but they're done in a way that actually is is controlled so that they can act they can be sublimated and serve higher functions that they're not merely arising on the emotional level and within uh the indian context the whole um ras rasa ras theory around the taste and all how aesthetics and art is supposed to evoke different uh, at least seven different um uh shadras the the the, the, the seven different emotional states or qualities these are all recognized as having not only kind of like utility on the emotional and moral and interactive level, but a secret or subtle or esoteric dimension that relates to high level contemplative states. And that if they could be marshaled within first the interpersonal and interactive sphere, then they can be channeled and sublimated into higher contemplative realizations that help you stabilize in very, very rarefied states. So there's that whole complex interdimensionality of what's going on where there's a kind of self-referentiality and a anchoring 
of the you know the the consciousness the the uh, desired qualities of consciousness within a, a creative and colorful framework that, that, that was impressive <laughs> um i i guess sort of a couple of things maybe three emerge i want to put this in um the imagery, of course, starts to come in. The artistic representations start to come in when Buddhism, of course, uh, comes into contact with uh, Greek culture uh, and Bactria. Right, the first images are actually made, probably by Greeks, uh, of the Buddha. The Moria um, culture yeah, yeah. interacting. Yeah, yeah, and so, and, and and then and then, of course, it gets carried into China, and this is all sort of emerging with the co-emergence of the Silk Road um, and other things. Um, and there's something there about this that I think is important. The degree to which I don't think it's happenstance is what I'm saying. I think there that whenever we're trying to be importantly cross-cultural, uh, the imaginal has to take a significant role uh, in in getting that bridging between the propositions and the non-propositional. And of course, the Silk Road. There's a there's a there's a there's a philosophical analog to the physical Silk Road that was taking shape. And I've been arguing about this. And so uh, I want to bring out that the imaginal may have a particular pertinence now in a global civilization in which the cross-cultural takes a prominence that it did not have before. And so that's a, that's a first proposal I want to uh, put out, that there might be a kind of centrality to the imaginal in a way that was not necessarily the case before, because while the cross-cultural was became present that's a historical example it wasn't as pronounced as it is for us now what has been called the problem of pluralism is a pronounced problem for us and so it's i'm suggesting we consider the fact that the imaginal may have a more pivotal role than it has had in the past precisely because it faces this problem in an exigent manner and an extensive manner that was not faced before so that's the first basic proposal uh, the second proposal is, uh, uh, I guess, a philosophical reflection that um, in associating the uh, the images with the imaginal, and I mean by that that they that we participate in them and we are we look through them and by means of them to augment our conception, our perception, etc., of reality, imaginally augmented perception, and this overlaps with a lot of uh, what Jennings and other people have called ritual knowing. We can talk a little bit more about that. Um, the, the two questions now come out for that. One is, what's the relationship between the aesthetics of the imaginal and the rationality of the imaginal? What's the normative standard, and and is there any normativity to it? I would argue that there is a rationality, that there's a rational standard uh, to ritual, and I would like to explore what that has to do with um, any normativity on the imaginal, what are the constraints on it, and then relate that back to the first question, because presumably getting a deeper understanding of the normativity on the ritual imaginal could help us better understand how it could face the cross-cultural demand. So the two points are linked. The third is, is linked, but more in a contrastive fashion. The way we're talking about the aesthetic here is deeply opposed to sort of the post-enlightenment tradition of taking the aesthetic up as the thing in itself that we have a disinterested relationship to, right? You're not looking at the painting for what it, anything beyond the painting, it's for its own sake. In fact, it can be it can be non-representational, etc. And I'm not here to deny 
that you, there can be a non-representational art. I'm just pointing out a po- about a tradition and that our relationship one is the normative relationship, the Kantian, right, is a disinterested, that we are, it puts us in a state of disinterest. We're beyond our concerns. And there's a, there's a, there's a part of this that's undeniable, which is, you know, we're getting beyond our egocentric preferences, but it seems to not call us into participation in, in anything, in any way other than a kind of purely, I don't know what to call it. Uh, this isn't the right word, but something like a purely sensual engagement with the work of art, just as a work of art. And we're and what we're talking about here seems to be directly challenging that who is saying no no uh these traditions look at how they're taking the the art up it's it's not you're not supposed to you're not supposed to be a disinterested observer appreciating the texture of the painting and the way the artist is clearly you know breaking frame like you're supposed to get involved with it in so far as it's transforming your relationship to yourself the depths of your psyche and the depths of reality so those are the three points the cross-cultural point uh the normativity point about and the connections with rationality um, around the imaginal ritual, the ritual imaginal. And I think imaginal is pro- a proper part of, of ritual. And then third, how this, this actually talks t- in a way that's in distinction to, in contrast to the post-enlightenment tradition around aesthetics. So those are the three things I would want to put on the table. Well, so many good things there. I think the, uh, you know, it's interesting that we associate history with written language so much because writing is such a powerful tool. But for most of our history as symbolic communicators, we were not using writing. We were using imagery or sculpture. And that it was conceived to be a form of communication and presumably a form of communication of something that was deeply useful and relevant to the people receiving the communication. So this attempt to make it uh, merely arbitrary or merely uh, aesthetic is problematic. I think you're right that um, the imaginal plays a special role or a renewed role where there's uh, the context of creative intercultural exchanges. Uh, probably we see that at different phases through history and something like the Silk Road, but many other phases as well tell us something about what we ought to be doing now. Bruce, I think you're quite right about um, the way in which the representations demonstrate the states needed for the ritual enactments, and also sometimes the content of the representations that are pointing toward the states are taken from ritual enactments, whether they yes. be esoteric or social rituals. I like all of that. And the thing that's coming up for me is the uh, that I want to challenge a little bit is the tendency to over-rely on static visuals as the dominant mode of the aesthetics. So the thing I'm thinking of is, is uh, let's say, tone and tempo. You know, maybe tempo is one of the most overlooked aspects of the way ritual and aesthetics interact. Where you can perform a ritual by agreeing to undergo the pattern, but there's a whole other level of performance where you do it uh, at a certain speed that produces yeah. an altered state and demonstrates, re-invokes that altered state in the observers. One of the things I point out to people sometimes as a teaching instruction is we all know how to pretend to do Tai Chi. <laughs> <laughs> There's a certain feedback modulated tempo. There's a number of different ways to think about what that means as an inherited neurophysiological mode. Uh, but that tempo, we, we slow things down just enough to be able to do something for ourselves and for others with those ritual enactments. And uh, 
I think it also changes the context of our relationship to time, right? Mm-hmm. I can I can readily imagine a, a very early human civilization where a person is sacralizing an object, which is partly to make it available for future ritual use by simply holding it up or placing it uh, in a certain speed of performance. You know, Nietzsche talks about the the way we can challenge ourselves with the idea of the eternal recurrence. And one other way to language that is how we can provoke our consciousness with the sense of indefinite duration. Because I think that particular aspect of the sacred participatory mode that is tempo feels like we're making the gesture for all worlds and for all times, that we're performing in the super historical environment that we are imaginally co-enacting. So that's the first thing that comes up for me. I just want, I just wanted to reinforce that, which was why I went off camera. I'm not sure how to pronounce this name, and so if I mispronounce it, <laughs> I apologize. Uh, Dimitri Zigliatis, I believe, new book out on ritual, and he's uh, he's really interesting. He's a cognitive scientist, bringing both qualitative and quantitative methods. But to your point, uh, Layman, he talks about firewalking and that there is the aspect of tempo. The way you firewalk is you have to walk at just the right speed. If you walk too fast, you'll kick stuff up and burn yourself. And if you walk too slow, the slow conductance from the hot coal will actually penetrate your feet. You have to get this little sweet spot of timing. And you and and you and so you have to you have to have you have to get into basically you're getting into a flow state, hyper concentration and focus to get this very specific timing uh, so that you can actually do the fire walking ritual. And that sense of being put into that altered timing is, of course, what is so powerful um, about the ritual. So I just wanted to reinforce your sense there. There's been, you know, he's done a lot of uh, participant observation measurement um, around this aspect of timing um, as very crucial and that we put, there's, there's demands put a whole system of constraints and, and you know it's and it's actually embedded in just the physics of the fire the the coal fire right um the embers uh, to 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 get that focus on timing and make uh, you can see the flow state clear signal tightly coupled feedback error matters all the flow induction uh, states and then they really get you into the timing and so i just wanted to reinforce your point and say there's really good good current published research around exactly that aspect, the timing aspect, the tempo aspect of ritual being really, really central to it. Yeah, I'd throw in one more thing, Bruce, which is that we see the, you know, the way slow motion is used in cinema echoes this a little bit as well, whether it's sexuality or violence, there's an additional level of salience that's added by slowing it down slightly. And it, I think entrains everyone's nervous system to become more of a participant. And this, this makes me think of Han's work in the scent of time and how we've last we've lost the ability to linger in time. Uh, we've atomized time and time is whizzing for us. Whereas rituals reintroduce us back to like that Bergsonian durée, that lingering in where the, the the tightly coupled to the flow, to the timing is crucial rather than moving through the order as efficiently or as rapidly as we possibly can. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's the, the I think the aesthetics about that, uh, and that's why I kept saying the imaginal ritual, as I was very much thinking of things that were being enacted. And we have very good evidence that as soon there was a third thing that was present. There's the images, 
And there's a sculpture, and we have very good evidence that music was also present in the Upper Paleolithic transition. Uh, we've got good evidence that there was dancing, good evidence that there were musical instruments, uh, etc. And and music, I think, is the epitome of everything we're talking about here, the aesthetics of pure salience and pure timing and pure involvement and pure movement, uh, all for their own sake. And I think part of what led to, like, you know, it's easy to talk like in a Kantian fashion about disinterested observation about a painting. I find it, you know, it, it, people can't do that as readily with music um, because the way music does not, it does not land cleanly on one side or the other of the subjective objective divide. For me, music is prototypically transjective uh, in a way that's really, really important. So uh, this is, I'm not saying anything new here. I'm just, I'm really trying to enrich and uh, maybe even enhance, I hope, what Lehman is saying. I think we should make sure that the aesthetics doesn't devolve uh, because of our Greek heritage onto the pictor the static pictorial. We should be much more encompassing and we should always think of it as a, a ritual aesthetics and not just a image aesthetics. If that's how I'm understanding you, Lehman. Yeah, there's again so much there. We each <laughs> have so much to pick up from. Uh, there are a number of things coming to mind for me. I think that's a really important dimension. When I was thinking about maybe broadening out to talk about the important suites of practices that we need to include, I definitely was including music and dance and other things in that. Um, I think, you know, obviously we've talked about before ritual creating a, a kind of a removed sacred container, a generative kind of container that's outside of the normal flow of things in which you could say, I sometimes talk about a ritual and practice as creating what I call a generative enclosure. And that generative enclosure has kind of light amplifying qualities. It, it can take whatever is uh, habitually present in us and, and, and amplify it in a way that we can have new insight into it. One of those, one of the means of doing that is through, you know, rhythm and tempo. And I can think of my experience uh, in, in Malaysia at, uh, you know, intensive, you know, two-week retreats. And in those retreats, 18 hours a day, you would either be meditating or doing slow walking or absolutely everything that you did during the day you do in in extreme slow motion eating showering everything so you basically slow everything down in a, a very intensified way over 18 hours a day and then just a little window of sleep and then up again to do it and that radically changes your experience of time but it also I think, yeah, it, it creates a special container in which everybody's moving in a different rhythm and, and it establishes a field. But that slowing down of the tempo allows for insight that doesn't have to be communicated verbally. Mm -hmm. When you slow down, you can see the different kind of schemas that are operative in your habitual way of doing things because at the slowed down pace, what normally happens in an instant happens in a broader time and you can see kind of the different factors that assemble in yourself to make that perception or movement or decision happen it all it all gets clarified in a particular way so it serves not only the generative field the, the creation of a generative field but also serves the facilitation of insight that doesn't have to be communicated verbally or pictorially um, 
So yeah. That, yeah. And one other piece I just wanted to add on there is just the opposite side of that is something like in the Sudic tradition, Sudicism or, or African-American personalism. They have a critique of transpersonal psychology, which is that it always focuses on silence and stillness and balance. You know, they're saying there's a whole other way of going about things, which is what they call like, you know, the interpersonal uh, dynamic where they're wanting to create a field of harmony among individuals through activation, mm -hmm. through NOMO, the power of the spoken word and rhythm and ritual and dance that leads to possession states. But from within that framework, they don't see the individuals as getting possessed and taken over by another entity, but that the rhythm allows you to possess certain heightened qualities mm -hmm. um, and participate in them um, deliberately. Um, so anyway, those are two things I wanted to add in there. I mean, playing with the timing, serious play with the timing, I think is really important if we accept, which I, I've argued we should, that cognition is not a formal system, but a dynamical system. And dynamical system altering timing alters the functionality of the system in a profound way and can be relevatory. And if, and you want to, you want to, to use the technical language, you want to perturb it to the extremes so you can explore the shape of the state space that it can get into. Right. Um, I, I definitely, I, I think that, I think there's good cog sci for everything you, you, you just, you just said there, Bruce. So I just wanted to uh, uh, put that in about uh, that. And I mean, this is sort of the Apollonian and Dionysian of Nietzsche. Uh, 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 I, Again, I, I, I guess um, the thing that comes up for me then is is is, is kind of a proposal um, around the normativity, because I think this is implicit in what we're saying, and I want to I want to propose it more explicitly and see what you both have to think about it. Is that part of the to say that we have a, I'm gonna I'm gonna say ritual now, uh, ongoing, right? But I always mean the imaginal within the ritual, and the imaginal doesn't have to be an image; it can be music, etc. Right? Okay. So the the aesthetics of it is, you know, that it's a good bidirectional bridge. A ritual is good if it can conduce people into the generative framework where there's imaginal augmentation of their perceptual and conceptual and dialogical powers. But it should, and this is Jennings and Brian and Shelbrecht, it should also conduce them well out into the aspects of their lives that are not ritualized and be generative and relevatory in all of those domains there as well. And that to degree to which it is, is, it is, it is well-developed to conduce in and conduce out while inducing, while, while educing in both air, in both poles, it conduces between the poles and induces within them. Then I think we can say, this is a powerful, uh, good uh, ritual. Um, it, and in that sense, it's beautiful um, and one that lacks to some degree on the directionality of having both directions or only induces in one and doesn't transfer to the other. I think those are basis for criticizing because if all of this discussion do, doesn't give us a way, because this is what all the religions do, they have a way of saying, that's good, do more of that. That's going to lead you down a dark path. Don't do that. And so we, we if we're st if we're talking about rethinking religion, we have to. I think I don't mean. I, I, I think we are obligated in the sense that there's a demand on us to meet the demand that other religions have met about properly trying to articulate what the the criteria would be. And I've just tried to propose a couple there. You know, you've got you've got a bidirectional conduction, and you've got powerful eduction on both poles, right? And that's 
a very good ritual. I'm not saying that's exhaustive. This was meant to be exemplary and to see if that lands in order to encourage other reflection upon uh, what it is we're looking for when we would what on basis on what basis could we epistemically in an epistemically and morally justifiable fashion recommend a ritual to someone? That's my way of thinking about it. Yeah, the uh, the normative imaginal dimension of ritual seems like the one that is has the most uh, untapped treasures to find. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very that, you you have a gift for putting a very positive framing on something that has been very problematic. That is that, that is very beautiful. Well done, well um, done. So I'm thinking of like what are the possible normative dimensions? Right, there's possibly a normative tempo. There are possibly normative morphologies. I think that one probably is worth drilling down into because uh, European occultism, Neoplatonism, but also all the way back to the first records of civilization, certain geometries were being used, yeah. yes. and they are recurrent, and they allow people to they have a certain binding quality that isn't merely the arbitrary work of the individual imagination. Yes. Yes. And then they show up in ritual and they also show up in the aesthetics we're putting forward. So I think geometry is going to end up being an important piece of this. There's, I think to Bruce's first point, like normative state production and Uh the aesthetics associated with that. And that would be anchored to personal and interpersonal practical outcomes in terms of empowerment. Uh, But also there's something like a meta consideration, which is, What's the context in which people are performing the ritual? Because I would be more likely to encourage people to participate in a ritual if I felt like the space had the kind of metacognitive fluidity of holding it tightly, but not too tightly, Mm -hmm. where there could be humor around the considerations, where the spirit of the people was open and not contracted. Then even if they were doing something I thought was not imaginally verified in the ritual, I would expect them to do it well and evolve toward a more ah. reliable ritual whereas if they were doing it in a mode of uh identification or contraction or uh, you know simple conformity then even if the structure was really good i would be worried about recommending that because the mode right. we approach the imaginal forms in right 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 good points do you think what you just said is in consonant with uh, with with what I just proposed too about this sort of bidirectional conduction and then the power to adduce within within the ritual and also without the ritual? Do you think that that's consonant that those two go together as a proposal? Yeah, very much so. And the the bit that I think is closest there is where I talked about the normative state production associated with yeah. the outcomes in personal yes. and interpersonal realms. Uh, yeah. Because obviously, I mean, that's a way to kind of vet it over time is we feel like we've got a really good grasp on this. But down the road, if people doing it are having bad outcomes, then we're not doing it right. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's exactly right. This brings out a tension within the uh, the anthropology of ritual knowing. When you ask people who are participating in the ritual, they'll say that ritual never changed. They're, they do it because this is the way it's always been done. But we have overwhelming evidence that rituals change. So what you have is you have... There's this evolution, but it happens in such a way that nobody realizes that it's happening, um, which is a really interesting thing. And I think you're trying, I think part of what you're talking about when you said, I want to be able, I want to get a sense that it has that kind of requisite. You don't want sort of patently obvious evolution because then people will game it. They'll game it, right? But you don't want it to be just static. Like you said, you don't want to just be like, yeah, finding that sweet spot. And what does it look like? And uh, that's really, really interesting. 
my parents were both really good landscapers. And when I was a teenager, I realized this because they would change the property and I would look at it and I couldn't remember what it was like before. It seemed like it <laughs> so well. I thought, oh, they must be good at this. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's exactly. There's something about, you know, we change it, but it's a masterpiece. And so we don't change it. Right. It, it, it's, 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 it's both of those. Sorry. We're talking a lot. We should let Lehman. I mean, we should let Bruce talk Lehman. Is it okay? <laughs> I was thinking of one thing because I'm I'm doing uh, work with Steve March. Um, oh, excellent, Alethea Coaching. Yes, and I think one of the the elements that you know I, I think has grounding in, in cognitive science and that's useful. I've been to many retreats and rituals where you do it and then it's over and you're thrust into yep. conventional world and it's basically. It kind of erases what's happened, and so it's the idea—it's a vacation. It's not an education. Yeah, exactly right. So if there is something that deliberately involves your engagement after the the mm -hmm. enactment, especially within that that five hour memory reconsolidation window, mm -hmm. um, would be I think a key thing for empowering many different ritual forms. Um, if there is some kind of, in the good communities I've been part of, you do the ritual, but there's also ongoing, you know, contact with the teachers and with the others so that there is a feeling of continuity. A lot of time people go to church and then they forget it for seven days, you know, or whatever, yep. and it doesn't land anywhere. So if there was something that could serve memory reconsolidation through a kind of, uh, re-engagement or, or, or instruction to connect to aspects of the ritual within a particular period after the enactment, I think that would help with an anchoring. I think that does. I think you you need to then, you, you, you've got to set up a, a framework, a philosophical semiotic framework that coordinates the practices, the rituals done with others, and then one's daily practices like i was brought up a christian you went to church but church didn't mean anything if you didn't do your daily devotions right um and and you know and 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 for what for whatever degree i've rejected the 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 the, the metaphysical propositions that has stuck with me as like yeah that that's that's the case that's really the case right and so you need you need and that's a tricky thing to do because uh, you can't have sort of practices of like like you can't just you've got to have a framework uh, a philosophical semiotic framework that justifies and explains and encourages uh the relationship between you know let's call them the communal ritual and the daily devotional ritual and, and integrates them together and says why both are needed and how they talk to each other and how you carry one into the other um i think you need that which is again part of the larger argument i've been making that you know ecologies of practices have to be homed within proper communities within frameworks right and i think one of the reasons why you know uh you know Tai Chi works for me is because it is set within the Taoist framework that helps me take, you know, the practices and transfer them out into non-Tai Chi situations uh, in a powerful way, because there's a framework, uh, a philosophical semiotic framework that bridges. I think if you have uh, the communal practices and the daily, uh, the communal rituals and the, and, and the daily devotional rituals, and then you have a, a bridging framework like that, I think that's what will encourage uh, it to take and to transfer um and then the thing to the, the the difficulty with doing that 
then is, um, I mean, the, the practical difficulty we face is we face something that the past traditions didn't face, or at least maybe they did, but maybe not as, I don't know, as saliently as we do. It's just a tremendous competition for people's time and attention that's on offer right now. Like I've had people comment on my videos uh, and they'll say, look, if I had to, if I, you know, if I, if, if, if I have to read all the books and do all these practices, I wouldn't be watching the video. And it's like, you don't understand what I'm trying to do here. You really don't understand what I'm trying to do here. I am not going to give the secret, the secret, you know, thing that you, the secret technique. Like the whole point is, no, no, I'm making an argument that you, like you have to do this in a committed and dexterous fashion, or it's not going to make any difference to you. So I, I, I don't know. I, for, for, for me, Bruce, what you're saying means we need, we need the philosophical semiotic framework that bridges bridges between the, the the communal practice and the daily devotion. Yeah, there's something I wanted to maybe just add real quick there. One, I think the West in its fascination, especially with uh, Eastern or different esoteric traditions, uh, has learned and matured over the last several decades. At first, it just wanted the techniques and it wanted yes. the immediate state. Yeah. yeah, and I think humbly we've come to gradually learn that even if we look down so-called on the metaphysics of those traditions, there was a lot of wisdom in a lot of the, you know, a lot of the ways that um, the elements played together, even if it was unconscious or unarticulated wisdom. Um, and my wife is going through that with her rediscovery of a lot of the wisdom in her Hindu practices that she was raised in, but that she rejected for a while. But one thing I was thinking of that's kind of maybe broadening us out to a little bit um, more of the practices in general is speaking about that semiotic framework and, and what role does an integral spirituality or what role does a religion that's not a religion play socially? And mm -hmm. one of the things that I've seen and that I think the way it's manifested in the integral world is it's played three different roles. And I've interested to bring that up to see if anything's missing or what you think about that and how how complementarily a religion that not a religion um, would play a role one is that it's more of an the integral framework is more of an adjunct or a symbiotic relationship with existing traditions it gives a a framework and a set of interpretations and an expanded model of practices that any existing tradition can used to reflect on its its own status and its own its own fullness and possibly as adjuncts to what it's already doing and possibly a reframing of what it's already doing. Um, for instance, even with uh, kind of your discussion of Neoplatonism, if you went out to the Hermetic, you know, Order of the Golden Dawn, they probably would not see Neoplatonism in the way that you're talking about it. They would hold it in a much more metaphysical and uh, way. I have friends who are in that and they've left it because they couldn't find uh, people willing to be in a consonant dialogue with science. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a, a, a reframing that can happen, right? The second is for the integral spiritual approach or to serve as its own practice vehicle with its own set of practices, its own general soteriology, its own community and, and, and ritual base as an independent thing. Third is it plays a mediating role between domains, not only between different traditions, but also between you know science or 
art or um, other dimensions of society where it it it, it tries to enact a kind of mesh weaving or or translative uh, role within society that can help with the integration of different elements within the social order. I, I think that's excellent what you just articulated. I, I, I guess perhaps I would want to add in it, it should have an intergenerational function, mm -hmm. right? A proper intergenerational function. And uh, in sort of analogous to that, hearkening back to an original point, uh, proper cross-cultural function, uh, which probably overlaps with the first function, but isn't quite identical uh, to it. And so those were the two I would want to add to that, that it, it should have those proper functions as well. Yeah, it's interesting to me to think about the uh, the arena of European occultism because it's easy to disparage it, and there's a lot of good reasons to do that. It has you know cultic and fantastical elements, and it's in a tense relationship to the dominant political and religious experiences going on in those cultures. But I think what we see there are attempts to do something like what we're discussing, right? We're seeing people use imagination. We're seeing people come together in an intercultural transdisciplinary context of scientific illuminism, trying to create rituals, trying to be connected to the past, trying to set it up intergenerationally, right? Uh, many of these things have failed and many of these things have been like... Uh, uh, houses for a lot of tendencies that aren't really very good for people. But nonetheless, uh, what they've tried to do and why they haven't succeeded, I think, is a very interesting area of study for moving this kind of project forward. Uh, the other thing that came up for me is, you know, thinking about this sort of philosophical semiotic framing or intermediary, I'm tempted to say philosophical, semiotic, and somatic. Mm. Uh, yes, because yes, I think, yes, um, yes. Yes. One of the things, like if somebody's watching your thing going, why do I have to track Socrates? Just tell me where he is, John. Right. They're, they're, <laughs> in a way, they're too lost in the digital information and they're not remembering their body. Right. Yeah. They're not remembering that their body has to go through it. And then likewise, the body has to be the right kind of container for the energies, let's say, that are released yeah. through ritual enactment. Otherwise, we yeah. get carried away if we can't be good containers for that. And I would add one extra thing, which is a, a, a sort of a separate topic, which is the content of the patterns of the ritual. Uh, I think there's many sort of subspecies of how to describe that patterning. And one of the options seems to be to present what we think the, the patterns of the production of insight or depth are. And to show that through a, a dramaturgical performance so that everyone has that in their mind. Right. So the better we can produce, a, say, a cognitive science mapping of what it's like for someone to learn or grow in a mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. Right. The more we can verify whether the ritual yes. is demonstrating that and allowing people to live that out and then carry that pattern with them into their lives. That was brilliant. Um, I, I, and I want to, first of all, express gratitude that there are people <clears throat> like you with your astute um, competence uh, studying the occult world, because I can't do it. I just, <laughs> I, just <laughs> I mean, I go as far into that world as uh, uh, more than many academics would. I, I, I'll hope you'll grant me that. But most, most of that stuff is simultaneously irritating and, and, and unintelligible to me. Uh, and you're nodding because I mean, I, 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 but 
part of what I'm saying is I acknowledge your point, and I think your point is a gem of a point. We need people like you who are competent and careful enough to do that reflection and bring out for many of us who cannot uh, what can be learned from that enormous laboratory of attempting to do the stuff we're talking about. I think that's an excellent point. And I just wanted to express appreciation. Like you have the ability to make a lot of this stuff not only intelligible, but like recommended for reflection that I have not seen in many individuals. Like you'll talk about stuff that I normally will ignore because the people who talk about it say gibberish uh, and you say, uh, and almost intentionally so, by the way, and you do exactly the opposite without being condescending, but with empathy and compassion. So I just want to congratulate you and express my appreciation, encourage you to keep going at that, because it, I think your point about how that needs to be brought into this discussion is right. But I, what I'm adding is we need the right people to bring it into the discussion, and you're exemplary of that. I will second that for sure. Yeah, I, I really feel that about him. And there's some really interesting work that's only tentatively, at least it's not easily available, but I've come across some work by David Michael Levin, who's done a lot of work on you know somatic approaches to philosophy and spiritual transformation. Yeah. Um, but he's taken some deep looks at alchemy and um, Western esoteric tradition and done a kind of reframing. And I, I mean, I think, John, you're doing that in a way with the Neoplatonic tradition. There are a lot yes. of people in the postmodern you know, academic world who have some interest in spirituality who will out of the gate totally reject Neoplatonism. Um, and that's one of the reasons that that Wilbur took a lot of heat is he brought so much Neoplatonist assumptions in the background of his work. Yeah. Um, but I think you're giving it an articulation that also makes it digestible and actually seem worth engaging. Thank you for saying that. That That's what I aspire to do with the help of some really talented people um, and collaborators. So yeah, um, I think Verse Lewis is right about Neoplatonism. It is the spiritual backbone of I would now not only say the West, but I would put Verse Lewis together with Thomas Blunt, the West and the Silk Road. Uh, and that is something we've got to, we can't ignore it. Uh, we can't just return to it. I acknowledge that, that the critiques establish that, I think. But we have to accept it. We have to accept it. Uh, I, I think that's not optional for us. Um, and so I aspire to do that well. That's what. That's why I'm here with with, with you, gentlemen. I like every time I talk, you you both have insights that just strike me as profound and brilliant. And it's, it's, it's great to be here doing this. Well, gentlemen, I need to be going soon. Um, and I'm wondering if uh, if we could perhaps wrap it up because uh, I don't want to just leave abruptly. Yeah, I feel like we've covered some good ground. I think it's, yeah. uh, you know, we actually need to get better at making more pithy and digestible material instead of. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Two-hour deep dive. So I think people will appreciate the this as a, a little gem of a uh, of an exploration here. Yeah, I wanna, I'd like us to uh, mark uh, to mark something we can use as the leaping-off point for next time, maybe from each of us. And I, I think the the thing that I said about the possibility of examining ritual enactments through the lens of whether or not they closely demonstrate cognitive science vetted yes. analyses yeah. of the process of transformation I, i'd like to pick that up next time I, that's exactly where i wanted to go I, I, this book has been deeply powerfully 
influential on me. Uh, Shilbrak, Thinking Through Ritual, and there's an intended play on words in the title. Um, and the, the stuff about ritual knowing, the rationality of ritual, ritual metaphysics, a metaphysics that is only accessible in an like it can't be reduced to anything else. A metaphysics that's only accessible through ritual, the normativity on that, and the way that lines up with Cogsci, especially for e Cogsci, that is something I would love to dive into deeply. Yeah, I'm very interested in that as well. So I think that sounds like a good jumping off point. I'm developing a course right now that's going to be looking very much on, you know, embodied practice. So mm. may want to bring in some element of of the somatic um, into that exploration. Yeah. And I'm engaging recently with the work of Richard Kearney around uh, carnal hermeneutics. And one of the, the things that he's kind of taking up is the kind of some of the Greek emphasis on the visual as uh, the primary metaphor. And he's looking back to Aristotle, but to other sources where the tact and touch yes. um, is actually really a key turning point for um, an embodied hermeneutics. So yeah, yeah we, might, we might get into that some. That sounds fantastic. That's, you know, and that goes to Taylor's notion of the difference between a, a representational and a contact epistemology, very much. I'd, lo I'd love to be involved in that. Great. Terrific. Um, then I'll, I'll say again how nice it is to see the new series, John. And uh, uh, Robert Gray asked me if we could do a discussion series around it going forward. And I also put an article on the Emerge website about it. And we're thinking about having Bruce come into those response discussions about the videos. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much, gentlemen. <laughs> That's, thank you so much. That's exactly what I want to be done with the series. That's exactly it. So thank you so much for doing that. I really appreciate it. Touches me deeply. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, thank you all. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Yeah. Take good care, my friends. Be well. Okay.